Bible doctrines, the doctrine of God, the glorious truth, and we're looking at the attributes of God. What is God like? Now, let me just say at the outset, we're not interested in studying theology in an academic manner. This is something that leads to worship and that is most practical. And even in the doctrine of God, we want the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Also, we're not studying doctrine in a philosophical manner. What do I mean by that? Well, we're calling this series Bible Doctrines. So we're taking out of the Word of God these glorious truths. So you need not fear in your Bible study groups then, you're still studying the Scripture. Uh, for every doctrine, uh, we are looking at where the Word teaches it. Now, without you having realized it, for the last 19 years, we have been, from this pulpit, teaching doctrine. But it's been dissolved in the exposition of the Word. As Lloyd-Jones put it, I seek to preach not doctrine, but doctrinally. So whatever series we've been in, there's been doctrine... Uh, underneath. But what we're doing in this series is preaching doctrine. So we're bringing out in a more undiluted manner, if I can put it like that, the truths. But don't be afraid. I know some of you, you're just afraid of this being too difficult. There are terms that we have to use because you won't be able to read any a book on theology without being aware of these terms. But believe you me, I am keeping them to a minimum. And when I do use a big word, I am explaining it. Uh, but don't you love, when you're studying a subject, uh, to learn the vocabulary as well? I, I love that. Uh, now then, the attributes of God. We started looking at it last time. What is God like? This is why we're saved. To know God. What's he like? Well, the first thing we did was look at the names that God uses to describe himself. A name in the Bible, it's not like our names. Our names don't usually mean anything. But Bible names usually would have a deep meaning to them. So that's what we did last time. And it was very uh, lovely looking at, especially at the different Jehovah names. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah uh, Shalom, etc. But now we're looking at the attributes of God proper. What's an attribute? Well, an attribute describes the character of something. So uh, this uh, pulpit is made of wood. It is varnished. I don't know what wood it is. Uh, there are flowers there. And they are yellow. 
That's their colour. They're daffodils, I think. So an attribute is a characteristic. But we're thinking in terms of God's attribute of a person. We're describing a person. Now, if you're in love with a person, you can't get enough, can you, of describing them. Uh, if you read the Song of Songs, uh, the way uh, King Solomon uh, describes uh, his uh, bride and the way the bride uh, just whacks eloquently about her beloved. So that's our attitude in looking at the attributes of the God we love. You do have the word attribute used in a verse in the New Testament. If you turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, chapter 2 of 1 Peter. And a very famous verse, verse 9, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? Why are we here? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you. A better translation, you may proclaim, show forth his excellencies, attributes. The uh, direct translation is you may proclaim his perfections, that's the best word to describe God's attributes. Because when we think of God, every characteristic is perfect. Perfect. Now, our church confession of faith, what we believe in, the Calvinistic Methodist confession of faith, which was penned in Aberystwyth in the 19th century, above where the Woolworths used to be and could well come back to, there's a plaque there, was based on the Westminster Confession of Faith, an earlier one that was compiled by the Puritans. And the Puritans met in Westminster Hall, which is there today, in the House of Commons. And in order to compile the um, Confession of Faith and the Catechism, you may be familiar, familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that they had to discuss, and it came to God. What is God? Imagine having to discuss that. Imagine if on Tuesday night in Elders we discussed the question, what is God? And all these great theologians were scratching their heads. They couldn't come up with a definition of God. And they asked a brother then to lead them in prayer. I don't know if this is anecdotal. I got it from Tozer. And this brother said, Oh God, you are spirit. You are infinite. You are eternal. You are unchangeable in your being, in your wisdom, in your power, in your holiness, in your justice, in your goodness, and in your truth. And that was an eureka moment. That's what they used for the definition of God in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So, the attributes of God. Tonight, we're just going to deal with the absolute attributes of God. And then next time, we'll deal with the moral attributes of God. What are the absolute attributes of God? They are things that are only true of God. 
and they're not true of us as those who've been created in his image. If you want the theological term, because it's a good one, these are the incommunicable attributes. They can't be communicated to any of us. They can only be true of God, although some people think that pastors are also uh, supposed to be like this. But no, it's only God. Uh, and then next time we'll look at the communicable, the moral attributes. Think like love and holiness. We are to emulate God in those things, but not in terms of the absolute, incommunicable attributes. So let's uh, look at them. And I've got four to deal with. And we'll try and get through them as quickly as possible, and then we'll be done. So the first of the absolute attributes of God is his eternity. None of us are from eternity to eternity, right? <laughs> there was a time when you and I didn't exist. We had to be born. But God isn't like that. The most famous statement is in Psalm 90, verse 2. This is an amazing truth. Before the mountains were brought forth, or... Ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Now, if you're like me into mountain walking, there is something unchanging about mountains, isn't there? I, I am so encouraged whenever I drive up the A470, not just because it goes to North Wales, but because on the way you can see the skyline of the Brecon Beacons, that hasn't changed. I can't imagine that changing. It will change on the day of judgment. But there's something comforting in the fact that the mountains and the hills shall not be removed. But they once didn't exist. But God is from eternity to eternity. When we looked at the name Jehovah, the name Jehovah means I am that I am. It means I'm unchangeable. I was what I was. I will be what I will be. It's true of our Redeemer, isn't it? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the Thanksgiving service yesterday for Sylvia, we saw people we hadn't seen in years, and they'd changed, because we all change. We get older, but God doesn't. James says he's the father of lights in whom there is neither variableness nor shadow of turning. But somebody might ask, but pastor, what about Bible verses that tell us that God repented? Repent means change of mind. We were in the book of Jonah a few years ago and God threatened judgment upon Nineveh and then when Jonah preached to them and the people turned to the Lord, we're told the Lord changed his mind. Doesn't that mean that God is changeable? No, no, no. God's character never changes, but his dealings with people changes. So when people repent... God no longer judges them. But that doesn't mean that God changes in his essential character. The theological term, incidentally, 
for God being ever the same is immutable. Isn't that a good word? Immutable. What did we sing? Change and decay in all around I see. O thou immutable one, O thou who changest not, abide with me. We don't just change, we don't just age, but we change our minds, don't we? Can you keep up with all the changes in society? Now, I'm middle-aged, and I find it a struggle. But for those of you who are older, it must be horrendous trying to keep up with all the changes. But God... It's not that God is old-fashioned. It's not that God is modern or postmodern. God is over and above that. Isn't that a comfort? The immutability of God. And not just changing uh, ideas, but our feelings change, don't they? Uh, especially if you're a Celt. So some days you get out of the wrong side of your bed, as it were. Other days, we're on a mountaintop. But God doesn't change like that. God has feelings. He's a person, but he is immutable. Uh, we were going to sing, uh, but we didn't have time. Uh, Bonaz, a beautiful hymn. I change, you change, even as believers, we're not dependable. The best of men, said J.C. Ryle, are men at best. You can't depend on any of us, but you can depend on God. I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. Uh, I'm always encouraged by Dale Ralph Davis's illustration of a young man who was a student sharing a house uh, with an elderly and infirm a former music teacher who lived downstairs. And this chap had a daily ritual. Uh, so the students would come down, and then the old man uh, would ask him, what's the good news? And then the old man would pick up his tuning fork and would strike it and would say, that's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle sea tomorrow. It will be middle sea a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flats. The piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friend, that is middle sea. Aren't you glad that God is middle sea? We, we may be flats at times. We're often out of tune. But God isn't. So that's the first attribute. Isn't it practical? Isn't it something to cause you to go down on your knees? To thank God that he's unchangeable. Then we've got three more absolute attributes, and they're all omnis. Does anybody know what omni means? All, absolutes. It just brings out the absoluteness. So, the omnipresence of God. 
Some people believe that pastors are omnipresent, but we can't be in more than one place at a time. But God is. He's omnipresent. Now, in his essence, God is spirit, as the Westminster theologians uh, defined him. But it doesn't mean that God's presence is the same in degree everywhere. So, in the Old Testament, Jesus quotes this. We're told that heaven is God's throne. Earth is his footstool. So when we think of the presence of God to the greatest degree, it's in heaven, isn't it? When God sent his only begotten son, the second person of the Trinity, became a man 2,000 years ago, he left the glory of heaven to come down to this world. Now that adds another dimension to the omnipresence of God, because even though God in his essence is spirit and is present everywhere, God is now, in a special sense, present in the person of Jesus Christ. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in heaven there is a man, Christ Jesus, representing us, who wasn't there before. Now hold on to that. God to the highest degree, is present in heaven. But he's also present in this world. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 23. Am I a God who's at hand, says the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places, and I shall not see him? Do not I fill heaven and earth? So God isn't just in heaven. He's everywhere. Now, that's not the same as pantheism, where you say that everything is God. But God is everywhere. Everywhere. It came out especially in Psalm 139. That's the best psalm in studying the absolute attributes of God. Tomorrow night, if all you do is study Psalm 139, you will look at these things where shall I go from your spirit or flee from your presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell or Sheol, the realm of the dead, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, uh, even there shall your hand lead me. Don't you feel sometimes like uh, having the wings of a dove and flying away to the uttermost parts of the earth? Uh, I sometimes want to go to Siberia. Not, not just anywhere in Siberia, but the northwest of Siberia, Kolimsky. But even there, God will be present. It's frightening if you're an unbeliever. You can't escape from God. The hound of heaven is going to be after you. But what a comfort to a poor believer to know that wherever he or she may be, God is there. I, I find that so comforting, don't you? Thy right hand shall hold me. I am weak, Lord. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it. But it's all right, you're holding me. 
life is uncertain, isn't it? Uh, if you're uh, finishing university, what's going to happen next? If you're starting university, how is that going uh, to go? Uh, if you're starting a new job, what's going to happen? If I have to move away from my home, something I may have not have done before. I remember having to leave Wales. I'd never left. I'd been on day trips outside of Wales, but when I went to Bible college, I had to leave Wales behind. And even though I was well into my 20s, I, I was crying as I was driving with my earthly belongings down the M4 to London. But you know, this promise kept me. God's promise to Joshua, I am with thee, that singular, whithersoever thou goest. And then, when we gather together, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. Even in times of spiritual dearth, I believe that the gathered people of God have his presence in a more special way than God filling the earth with his presence. And when there are revivals or visitations, which is a better term, there is such a sense of God's presence that it's a community, not just a church, a community saturated with God. But my friends, that doesn't mean that when there isn't a revival, God isn't present. It's the degree of God's presence. It's the awareness. It's the weight, isn't it? The weight of glory. I mentioned before about the 1904 revival in Ross. There was a point where you could sense God as you traveled towards Ross. I've had people share with me about this church, and I think it wasn't limited to this church, but to other churches in the 70s. There was just a sense of God. We know very little of that today, don't we? In this country, anyway. How many of you have been in a service and it's got nothing to do with the hymns that you enjoy singing? It's got nothing to do with the eloquence of the preacher. It's often plain preaching. But at some point in the service, there is a difference because God has come down. So when we're praying, come down, O love divine, we're not saying that God isn't present. As Mr. Hyam put it, it's the known and the felt presence of God. I've had some people tell me when God visits, it's tangible. It's as if you can touch it, the presence of God. So that's the first omni, the omnipresence of God, the omniscience of God. What is omniscience? No, no, omni is all. See, science is knowledge. The omniscience of God. God knows everything. Uh, Psalm 147. His understanding is infinite. So he's not like us having to do a series on Bible doctrines in order to understand more. God knows from the beginning. Everything. 
He doesn't need to grow in knowledge. Now, again, when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who became a man 2,000 years ago, we are told that Jesus, as a boy, grew in understanding and knowledge. But we're thinking here now of the essence of God. He knows everything. Again, some people think that pastors are omniscient. We're not. We need to be told if a person is in hospital. We don't have that special attribute. Now then, let me try to get us to see how amazing the omniscience of God is. He knows everything, right? Now, I feel a bit like Sherlock Holmes sometimes. Sherlock Holmes used to say uh, he didn't read much uh, other stuff because there was only so much his mind could take, right? So we're all like that, aren't we? There's only so much we can know. So we've got to withhold certain knowledge because we know we just can't have our minds uh, filled with it. But God knows everything on the big scale. Uh, So let me quote Psalm 147, verse 4. He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. So I can't do the illustration that Andy does so well about the earth and about the solar system and about the universe and about the galaxies and about the universe. But if you just think of the vastness of God's creation, and God knows everything on that macro scale, then this is what's more amazing. He knows when a single sparrow falls. With your breadth of knowledge, do you know when a sparrow falls? I don't. But God does. Isn't that amazing? Now, I've still got a lot of hair. God numbers the hair on my head, on your head. Isn't that astounding? Psalm 139. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine up-rising. That's what we were doing in the hymns. You were getting up. You were sitting down. Maybe some of you have to struggle to do that because of arthritis. God knows. God knows when you go home tonight and what you'll be doing behind closed doors. Now, there's something frightening about that, yes, but there's also a comfort, isn't there? If you're going to an empty house. We've had a number of funerals recently and people will have lost loved ones. And God knows. The the psalmist in Psalm 139 puts it beautifully. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. You know what I'm thinking. Other people don't know what you're thinking, but God does. It's frightening, but it's a comfort as well. If you're misrepresented, you can say to God, Oh, Lord, you know everything. You do. Thou compassest my path and art acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, thou knowest, thou knowest. Psalm 40, I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. 
Wow! He's interested in you. He's interested in me. Uh, going to the Banner of Truth conference, which is a big conference, right? Minister's conference. I'd grown up spiritually reading banner books. And I went to one Banner of Truth conference, and the founder of Banner of Truth is Ian Murray. And somebody came up to me with a message. There was little me from Caer Gurle. Who'd heard of that? Going to the Banner of Truth conference. And somebody came up to me and said, Ian Murray is looking for you. He thinks on me? God thinks on you. Thinks on me. Thinks on our little church here. So, isn't it a comfort? God knows everything. Uh, in uh, one home I visited once, there was this, somebody, somebody here may ta- might have this in their home as well. There was this uh, uh, form of words hung on the wall. Christ is the head of the home, the unseen guest of every meal, the silent listener of every conversation. Now, that's a two-edged sword, isn't it? If you're backslidden or if you're an unbeliever, that is scary. But if you're a believer, and however weak your faith, if you're seeking to walk with the Lord, isn't it a comfort? He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. So one more, Omni, and then we'll be done. We'll go into communion. So what have we got? The immutability, the unchangeableness of God, the om... I've got to look at them myself. The omnipresence of God, he's everywhere. The omniscience of God, he knows everything. And there's one more, the omnipotence of God. He's all-powerful. Ephesians 1, 11, he works all things according to the counsel of his own will. Incidentally, you can twist God's omnipotence and make him into a tyrant. None of God's attributes act independently of all the others. So God's omnipotence goes with his justice and his love. So that doesn't mean uh, that God can lie. It doesn't mean that God can sin. But in his essence... He is all-powerful. And as we sang in the first hymn, he is always fulfilling the mighty plan of his great love. And this is what I want to concentrate on in terms of the omnipotence of God. I'm not interested in raw power here. It's the mighty plan of his great love. The Bible has... uh, a metaphor that uh, describes this. It talks about the arm of the Lord, especially the right arm of the Lord. That doesn't just denote power. It denotes the mighty plan of his great love, God's salvation. So let me just go through a few things before finishing. God promises Abraham something 
Impossible. Only omnipotence can bring it to pass. What does he promise? He promises a seed. It can't happen because Sarah, Abraham's wife, is barren and she's too old. Impossible. What did God say? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's omnipotence. Omnipotence. So Isaac is born, but Isaac isn't the seed. It's still to come. And so we're going forward. And it's not David. It's not David's son, Solomon. It's thousands of years later that the seed came, Jesus Christ. And God sends Gabriel to Mary. Again, a powerless teenager. And once uh, Mary hears this, that she's going to give birth, the virgin birth, another miracle. She says, how can this be? And what's the answer? For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And then when the child grows up, he's got to grow in knowledge. Because even though he's God, he's a man as well. But he's the seed of the woman. And you know where the power of Christ is seen most? It's not in his miracles. It's not even in the raising of Lazarus from the dead. The power of Christ reaches its apex on the cross. And that is, for me, the demonstration of both the power and the wisdom of God. Uh, Jesus Christ came after the Greeks had had their opportunity to find God by wisdom, but they had failed miserably it came after the Romans had tried to civilize the world. It failed miserably. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But it's not found where man seeks it. It's Christ crucified. The wisdom, the power of God. The Messiah hanging on a Roman gibbet. That's the power of God? Yes, it is. Because he could have come down. But it was love. And the fulfilling of the mighty plan of his great love that held him there. So that we could be saved. And then there is the power of God, isn't there, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And there is the power of God in the resurrection of you and me when we are made alive spiritually, the same power that he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. There is the power of God, and it's got to be omnipotent power in the raising of a church, in the keeping of a church. We're still here, and I'm not just talking about Heath Church now. I'm talking about the one holy apostolic church. 2,000 years of what? Not of man trying to hold on, but of Christ's power. And that's why the church will never die. Do you know why I'm in the pulpit tonight? The only reason I'm here is because of the omnipotence of God. There is no way I would be here if it was up to me. Why have you become a Christian? It wasn't because you decided. It was because God saved you. 
Why are you still walking the Christian uh, road, as it were? Many have given up. But you are still going on because it is the power of Christ that is working in you. Why would anybody in their right mind seek to be ministers of the gospel? Well, when I was converted even, I assured my parents there were two things I would never do. Become a school teacher and become a pastor. And I found myself doing both. Never say never. And I'm just a little pastor in comparison to the vast number. When you think of men that have gone to the uttermost parts of the earth to preach Christ and who've given up their lives for the sake of the gospel, why would anybody do that and count it an honour? It's got to be the right hand of God. Not just saving, but calling, holding. I was visiting, I'll come to a close here, I was visiting... Paul Tench yesterday afternoon two elders having a hip operation in one week that must be a record and Paul uh, was sharing with me about a verse the Lord had given him and I can't remember the exact reference but it was something to the effect of God carrying God carrying isn't that a lovely picture of the Christian life. God carrying us, even to our grey hairs. That's the verse. You'll be able to tell me afterwards where it is, right? But I can see many with grey hairs here. God has carried you all the way, all the way. My Saviour leads me. We were going to have it yesterday. Can't you see, brothers and sisters, that the contemplation of the attributes of God is not something dry. It's not something that puffs us up intellectually. It's something so comforting and something that should lead us to worship. And we're going to do that now by singing of that power. Mighty Christ, from time eternal, mighty he Man's nature takes mighty when on Cal Calvary dying, mighty death itself he breaks. See his might. This is omnipotence in finite. King of heaven and earth by rights. 117.
Let us proclaim the grace together, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.